Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm an amateur bodybuilder. Rob Fortress Fortney here. I'm a journalist, a former editor at Muscle Mega International, a former competitive bodybuilder, and a competitive powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm the owner of Strength Guild. I operate LiftForHope.org. I'm a powerlifter and Island Games athlete. And as of tomorrow, I'll be one limb closer to being all aftermarket parts. Oh. Tell us about that. So you blew yeah. the biceps. Yep. Yeah, I blew, blew my left bicep now. So, uh, <laughs> again, it was, it was. I, I told my wife I'm going to quit messing around with lightweights because that's when I get injured. Um, that's I when everybody gets injured. Seriously. Yeah, I, I deadlifted the, the morning, and it was my first, the bad thing, it was my first day to start getting ready for this meet coming up in October. So training went awesome, and then I, I got to messing around and, and doing some stuff around the yard and, uh uh, throwing some things around, not paying attention to what I'm doing, and, and it just snapped. Uh, so here we go again. Yeah, war scarred <clears throat> veteran. Yep. So at least he could have been on something cool, you know, like pulling 800 pounds off the floor or something, you know. Yeah. It's worth it then. But. And you know how ironic is this? Just last week we did a, a, a big epidemiological survey of how powerlifters get hurt. Yeah. And maybe we cursed you, dude. I'm sorry. No, I know. I had a fun, I had a, me and my, uh, surgeon talked for a while. He was amazed that I knew things about anatomy and things like that. And we, we got to joke uh, about how worthless the biceps muscle is and oh. how we, you know, if we didn't have to eat, we could just kind of get rid of it. <laughs> but, but, but we need to grab things and, and supinate it and bring it to our face. So, yeah. um, yeah, other than that, it was, you know, but yeah, you know, all's good. I'll, I'll get in a tight relationship with the safety squat bar again and, uh, come back stronger and, and smarter. There so. you go. So now, your surgery scheduled in very short duration here, you said? It's tomorrow morning. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah, tomorrow morning. So they tried to get me in yesterday, but we had some insurance stuff going on. Um, they didn't want me. We have two hospitals right by each other, and they didn't want me going to the other hospital. It was going to be out of network, so we had to wait two days and move to the other one. So, gotcha. yep, in and out. And this guy, I like the surgeon a lot. It sounds like last time I was in a cast for eight weeks. He said at the most, he said, at the most, if I'm in anything, he'll have me in a, a splint for six days, and then I'll be back to move my arm. The hardest thing for me last time was after eight weeks in the cast, everything shortened up. I had to, it took me like five weeks to be able to straighten my arm again. So we'll start working on that right away. Yeah. So by the time I'm healed up, he said six weeks, I'll start training again. Three, 12 weeks, I'll be 100%. So. You know, that's always a challenge with me. You're, you're so experienced with injuries, but when I, when I blew my, my triceps, two things. First, <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying. I, I got in great conversations with Bill Pakin, who was my surgeon, just, mm-hmm. you know, about, you know, the nature of it. I'm like, well, how can I still have a fair amount of strength with, you know, with extension? Is that like the yeah. anconius muscle? It's like the size of a pencil, you know? Yeah. Like what's, what's allowing this? But he had very strict rules. He said, I really don't want a physical therapist cranking on your arm very much for the first six weeks. You know, leave my work alone. You know, they have such pride yeah. in, in that stuff. But I think the big thing is get, if listeners, if you're not familiar, muscle tears, they scar down inappropriately if you don't get them treated fairly quickly. Yeah. 
So yeah. you've literally got about, I'd say, what, seven to ten days or something. I yeah, believe. they want you in there right away. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's tough to hear that, but yeah. if anybody can bounce back from that, it's you, brother. Exactly. I'm going to be the reverse light bulb. I'm going to be all muscle down low and none up top. Man. <laughs> That's all right. So, We'll yeah. need some more of that, I think. Yeah. All right. Okay, uh, well, I, I'm going to share one little bit of news, and I think Phil's got something as well to set up um, the topic of the day. Our topic today, after we speak with Dr. Dawn Anderson, is caffeine, because she has a, a new book chapter uh, related to caffeine, and, and she and I have been doing some energy drink and caffeine-related research uh, throughout the spring. But I just wanted to bring up this DMAA ban. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, I've got a little quote here from a, a law firm. And I, I feel like, like I said, I think you have something. But this is from May 9th. It says, uh, this is, by the way, just as a reference, this is the uh, SchmidtLaw.com. Uh, it's a law firm. It says, Harvard researcher advocates the DMAA ban, uh, May 9th. It may surprise you that DMAA has not already been banned officially in the United States. The Department of Defense has banned sales of DMAA on military bases, and the FDA recently sent warning letters to 10 different manufacturers of DMAA dietary supplements. However, the products are not technically illegal. Now, Harvard researcher Dr. Peter A. Cohen has published an article in the Archives of Internal Medicine, and it goes on and you know dis- basically talks about how it could potentially be damaging to your health. Yeah. And then uh, a few more uh, comments here. It says, Cohen argues that the pharmaceutical chemical has no place in the supplement world. Apparently, it was first produced by uh, the drug company Eli Lilly, as a nasal decongestant. So I think a lot of people know that things like pseudoephedrine, ephedrine, these are, you know, antihist- or, um, uh, decongestant kinds of products, which is why you, you can't even go get Sudafed anymore when you got a stuffy nose because kids are turning it into crank in their bathtubs. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, the FDA revoked approval for the drug in the 1970s. This is approximately 200 dietary supplement products currently contain DMAA. Uh, and some of the popular supplements include Jack, 3D, or Jacked, I don't know if that's, is that Elite Speak? Uh, Oxy Elite Pro, Code Red, and more. So, anyway, some uh, increased yeah. attention there from the FDA. Exactly, and I think it was coming. I mean, this, the, the article I'm looking at just mentions, everybody kind of knew it was coming when the, the military banned it from all their bases, and they've been uh, investigating six deaths um, from from people using DMAA. And then Major League Baseball and the World Doping Agency has banned it already. So once the military jumped on board, it was just a matter of time. And, uh, you know, it just, it just states the, the health risk, elevated heart rate, dry mouth. And then it says, you know, you're going out training hard and you're, you're getting more dehydrated anyways and you're elevating your heart even more. So. Yeah. Well, I'll tell I you, with, with all of the, the hubbub with, uh, ephedra or ephedrine, um, mm-hmm. on the market, off the market, like literally at the gym there in Winona, in Minnesota, the guy is selling ephedra tea. But then we spoke to, I think it was Sean Casey, who is a, sort of a friend of the show here, and he's he was relating that an FDA little workshop or whatever last fall, the guy was assuring the attendees that it was banned. And he said, if there's anything in that tea, it's not the alkaloids, it's not the effective part of the ephedra, you know, uh, plant yeah. or whatever. So anyway, DMAA, ephedra, all this other stuff. Sometimes I wonder what's wrong with good old caffeine, yeah. uh, but that's partly why we have Dr. Anderson on. So welcome to the show, Dawn. Oh, thank you. Happy to um, be here. 
let's start off with uh, your background. We always introduce ourselves at the beginning. So same thing with, with the guests. So maybe just share with the listeners, you know, what your background is academically and athletically. Okay, sure. Uh, I didn't start off in the traditional path that most people do. So this gives a little different perspective. I started off working on a bachelor's in math and speech. So that's where I was decided I didn't want to work with younger populations as of middle school and high school students, so started working on a Ph.D. in math with the intent I was going to teach college math. Oh. Uh, yeah. To me, classes were going okay, but it really wasn't where my passion was. So I took a semester off, took some other courses in this new field to me called exercise physiology, and I took exercise phys and kinesiology and thought these were like play. It, this yeah. definitely connected with me the way I think, the way I I had my lifestyle at that point and said, great, I'm going to switch. So I got my master's in exercise physics from Iowa State University and then went on for a Ph.D. at Ball State University, which is in Indiana. And from there came to Winona State and I'm now a full professor there. Mm-hmm. For listeners, uh, Ball State has really um, been a sort of an exercise physiology academic hotbed uh, for years with guys like uh, Costal and um, – Gosh, who all came out of that lab, uh, Dr. Anderson? You- oh, gosh. Um, Dave Costa was my major professor, but Bill Evans came out of there. Eddie Coyle came out of there. Um, yeah. Rob Pasco, Jeff Sacquija, who was with uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute for a while. So we've had some really major players coming out of there, and it was a wonderful facility to learn and, and grow in. Right. Yeah, I sometimes will have graduate students or potential grad students send me an email and say, you know, where should I go if I'm interested in doing sort of a ex-phys and sports nutrition? And I always try to narrow it down to what they might like. But there's definitely the, the big labs, and Ball State is definitely one of those labs that I still consider sort of a, you know, central um, to the field. But Yeah. Um, okay, so why the exercise physiology topic? I mean, personally, were you lifting at the time? Was Were you already in martial arts at that point? Because I know you're no. experienced martial oh, gosh. artist. Martial arts wasn't even on the spectrum. I had been competitive swimmer, uh, played ice hockey and competitive soccer throughout all up until my, my high school career was done, and I decided I did not want to be an athlete when I went to college. So I purposely went to a college that did not have any of those athletic programs there for women and thought, right. I'm just going to dedicate myself to studies. Well, that didn't last very long. A couple weeks into the first term, I said, I got to do something. I'm just bouncing off the walls. So strangely enough, I took up longest. A true athlete. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got to do something. Yeah. I picked something completely foreign to me. I said, I'm going to try long distance running because I've never tried anything on that aspect before. I didn't last real long because it just wasn't a good fit. And at the time was dating a guy who is now my husband, and he was into football and weightlifting. He says, why don't you come and lift with me? I said, oh, that sounds cool. Uh, a little bit more up my alley anyway. I'd done a lot of weightlifting through sport before, so we became training partners. And when I went on to grad school, continued lifting with him, and we'd daily go into the gym early, bright mornings before we had classes and train. And as I was going along, more questions came into my mind because I'd, I'd hear of things going on at the gym, people trying some really bizarre things with diet and supplement and wondered, you know, is this something that I should do or shouldn't do? And then along about the same time, as I was questioning what I should do professionally, I had a few people at the gym say, you know, have you ever thought about trying bodybuilding? And I just laughed at first. You've got to be kidding. They said, no, you should seriously go and look at a show, see what you think, and go try it. And lo and behold, I did. So right after my first bodybuilding show, I switched majors completely 
because this exercise physiology area made so much sense for me figuring out how I could train better, mm-hmm. how I could feel better, how I could look better and, and be healthier. So that's kind of what led me to that field, mm-hmm. completely different from math. Yeah. I, I kind of like the idea that you're, you're sort of a math and science person who was drawn to the athletic side instead of starting specifically. Cause you know, sometimes in, in, as you know, in, in sort of exercise sciences, they, they almost become a little bit diluted in that people that come through, they're not always from a hard science background and then sure. apply that. Although I think you are seeing that more. We've had quite a few guys on the show, uh, in the past, like grad students, you know, guys like Lane Norton, uh, or um, Nick Bird from Stu Phillips Lab, a couple of people who clearly are, you know, the harder sciences and they got drawn toward their, toward, you know, their lifting passion, I guess. But yeah. a lot of times you don't see that. So I think, I think it's good to have some of the, you know, the hardcore uh, geeks <laughs> get yeah. into the, you know, bring their passion to it. Well, to um, me, it was more selfish in nature, too, trying to figure out why am I not doing better? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How can I do better? That competitive part of me coming out, not only academically, but athletically, trying to see where I can, where can I get my edge based on some science? Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's fun to use your mind, you know, to become better at something or even just to figure out, like you said, I was in a similar situation when I was probably mid teens through early twenties, I was doing competitive Taekwondo and, you know, even four times a week, two hour practices, you know how that heavy interval work, my VO2 max never got over about 50. And I'm like, you know what, with the amount of effort I'm putting into this, I should be just, you know, an aerobic champion. And I never was just, I just wasn't built for it, I guess. I don't know, you know, and then at the same time, there's that kind of weightlifting side of thing where you're like, oh, this is completely different, you know, and and you know what? And I can also uh, really sort of empathize because when you were moving in that direction, because you're just a little bit older than me, that we were we were not really given a lot of opportunity on the strength side in exercise phys programs. It was like pure like endurance type stuff, you know, so. Yep. In fact, I think my major professor, I worked under Rick Sharp. I was at Iowa State. He he did some really neat things with Olympic swimming programs, but I became his advisee, and I said, you know, could we look at for my my thesis project what happens when people are training very heavy resistance type training or high endurance cycling, you know, high high intensity cycling? What happens if they're on lower protein diets? What's going on with the actual muscle tissue? And then what about if we reduce carbohydrate in the diet? What's happening with that? And he kind of took a chance on me. Because this was something very foreign. As you said, most of the work there was done on aerobic athletes, you know, oh, marathon yeah. runners, endurance cyclists, and we were looking at something very, very different. Oh, the amount of ribbing I used to take. I've probably even joked about it on the air before, but people would say, oh, that, that's Lonnie. He's got the VO2 max of a field mouse, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. I'd be like, you know what? The, <laughs> I, but <laughs> think about like a comparative physiology. You know, I'm not a migratory bird. Or, or like I'm not a hummingbird. I'm more like a crocodile. So, you know, I might just pin you down to eat you for your protein content. You just remember that, you know, because you know, a lot of these- because I think, I mean, I always bring up the psychology aspect because that's what I guess what I'm most interested. In. But I mean, you know, as, as Lonnie knows very well, a few years ago for, I was, you know, actively engaged and actually trying to impress, improve my aerobic capacity for something I was doing at the time. And I never veered from, you know, my purest strength, um, training pursuits and I, I actually very much improved my aerobic capacity and I didn't really notice any drop off at, at all in my in my strength capacity or my training and I um 
I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I just kind of like, again, from the psychological uh, vantage point, you know, A, I accepted that I was doing both. And I, and I think, I think a lot of people really underestimate what, how, how impactful that is to say, like, you accept what you're doing at the time. A lot of people in my position specifically, you know, were, you know, it, strange training being the first love kind of a thing would kind of resent, you know, the, the, the cardio training and that kind of yeah, the running and the that kind of thing. And, you know, they'd always have that thing in the back of their mind that, oh, you know, you know, excuse my language, you know, goddamn running guy. You know what I mean? The kind of a thing where I was just like gave myself to it. But the thing that I also have to, you know, say to balance that that equation out is the whole concept of the fact that I certainly didn't run a lot. You know, like I was only running really actively running maybe, well, you know, Rob, you're very hard. heavily so. built too. You know what I mean? So I think uh, there's a lot of people who if they tried to be – uh, jack of all trades, they wouldn't be able to carry the amount of weight that you did. You know, I mean, that you do. Uh, after all those years of lifting, you're a huge guy. So, you, and, and and it is good that you can actually, you know, increase your aerobic capacity. Or a lot of powerlifters, they do a lot of conditioning work. I mean, the whole field of strength and conditioning. I think it yeah. sort of suggests that you can do things other than just run. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's, it's interesting because people always just say, "Oh, because I mean, when I was doing that, I mean, I'm heavier now. I'm like 290, but you know, at the time I was whatever I was, 270 or whatever." You know, and people always comment, "Oh, you're how are your knees, how are your lower back." That's all I kept hearing, and, and honestly, I never had a knee or lower back problem ever. The only thing I had is some shin splints in the beginner and began that went away reasonably quickly, and you know, and, and I attribute that mostly to the fact that for so many years I was, you know, only weight training. You know, so I think I had developed yeah. so much strength and muscle in those areas that, you know, running was, even though I was very heavy. So, and it, to, to all the people out there who think that you, you know, um, you know, the strength training doesn't um, aid in any sort of like running capacity, I, that's one way that I can guarantee you that I definitely think it does. You know, yeah, it, I think up to it, a point they're, they're mutually beneficial. I think when you start to, at some point you start to tip the scales, you know, where the adaptations, and that's something that, of course, you learn in school like Dr. Anderson did early on, was you start to realize the adaptations are, are sort of dichotomous, you know, they're, they're divergent. On one side, you're, you're building, you know, mitochondrial density and capillaries and stuff that it might be helpful to your lifting in sort of a conditioning sort of way, but at some point, you know what I mean? You've got to learn as a power lifter or even a bodybuilder, there's, there's got to be times of the year when you learn to be a little lazier. In a sense, you know, you right. learn to rest and you're not constantly doing, uh, you know, basically expending energy that could go toward building your, your body. Right. And, and that's why I finished off, off by saying, you know, there, there has to be a certain amount of um, thought towards, you know, balancing the two and, and prioritizing one or the other. But like I said, from a mental standpoint, you just have to accept what you're doing and, you know, look at both as being beneficial to whatever it is that, why you're doing it in the first place. And then again, make it kind of an educated, you know, balanced decision as far as, you know, what you're going to allot to each one. and Exactly, right. What proportion of, do you add of each? Exactly. And that's, that's massive because I, I, I can guarantee you as well as despite what I just said, I can guarantee you that if I was running, you know, with any sort of intensity four or five times a week, that absolutely would have <laughs> negatively affected my strength training. So, yeah, right. you know, you just you have to have that kind of balance. And unfortunately, most people who, you know, don't have the, the you know, the information, you know, or the experience to know kind of where that balance might be. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I, they don't really grasp that you can actually go all the way through school in something like exercise physiology or, you know, even with a st- focus on strength conditioning, uh, you know, and there's there's literally like a dozen years worth of learning that can go on there. And there's a huge amount of underlying physiology with all this, you know. So and actually, I was going to ask you, uh, Dr. Anderson, what's what was what drew you into 
the strength conditioning aspect. I mean, I know one of the main courses you're teaching now is literally strength and conditioning, and you prepare people more or less for the CSCS exam, right? Right, right. That is a big, big function of the course is to get students ready to sit for the National Strength and Conditioning Association Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist exam. So we have probably half our students that go through that course that do end up going, testing, and getting certified. Again, biggest draw for me is, is more of a selfish nature because I'm still thing. In fact, one of the prerequisites for my husband and I when we bought our house is it had to have enough room for all of our weightlifting equipment. Nice. <laughs> so that's uh, about a half of our basement is filled with our free weights and cable systems and benches, and we can train when we want to train. And for me going through that certification, but also helping to teach this course and being involved with the NSCA, it helps me learn more about what I have a passion for. And so for a selfish perspective, I get to do better, but then I can pass it on to a number of our students, too, is I don't competitively bodybuild anymore. But I think as Lonnie kind of hinted at, I'm into martial arts, so I compete, train and teach karate and also traditional Okinawan weapons. So I can use that strength training to help me in now another avenue also. Right. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay, well, before we go to break, I just wanted to ask you one last thing, which is what do you have going on now? Like with the NSCA, I know that you're uh, you're part of a nutrition subgroup, I think, with the National Strength Conditioning Association, yeah, but other things as well. Okay, right now I am a member of the advisory board for the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Mm-hmm. We are working also with a sports nutrition acknowledgement program for universities that are doing sports nutrition programs to look at is their program meeting our content areas, and if so, how can we evaluate that and make that publicized for other students that are wanting to come and learn about sport nutrition for a program that is going through the material that we think is appropriate. Um, I'm on the editorial board for the journal Strength and Conditioning Research, so that gives me an opportunity to really read a lot of the cutting-edge research that's coming out there and, and be involved within that. And also on the executive board for the Nutrition, Metabolism, Body Composition, Special Interest Group for the NSCA. Okay. Now, one last bit here is obviously you've got some books and book chapters going on. So can you share yeah. a little bit with that? I think it helps set the stage a little bit for our topic, actually. Sure. Uh, in February, I had first big book come out, and it's a joint book between Mel Williams, myself, and Eric Rawson. It's Nutrition for Health, Fitness, and Sport. From McGraw-Hill Publishers, this is the 10th edition, so Mel Williams, who had been involved with that book from its inception, is now retiring, moving on to a better aspect of his life, and he's looking for some people to take that over. So uh, myself and Eric Rossen will be taking over from now on. And Dawn, if, if I can interject, I just want yeah. listeners to know, this is huge. Mel Williams is someone <laughs> who I consider one of the founding fathers of exercise physiology and sports nutrition. Uh and, and now he's a, I think, I believe he's a runner himself, isn't he? Yep, he is. Um, but, uh, I, I met him once or twice and I'm super impressed that Dr. Anderson actually got to write a book with him. That is amazing <laughs> to me. For the last 15 years, when people send me something from the podcast, uh, I tell them the same thing. Go get this book. Like, you know, because <laughs> a lot of people, when they, when they learn about strength training or physique kind of sports, they're very well, like, self-trained in specific areas but they have like gaps in their foundation you know and you can tell when you talk to them you're like wow you're very advanced in that topic but you just said something that made me you know wince a little little. so 
I, the Mel Williams book is a fantastic resource. It's a, I would consider a beginner all the way up through fairly advanced. So if people are interested, go check it out on Amazon.com or whatever, especially now that Dr. Anderson is part of it because now you've got a little bit more of the, uh, you know, strength representative as part of that whole lineup. So good well, stuff. Thanks for the plug. I, I agree. I was, I was very flattered when I was approached and asked, would I be interested in, in being part of this, this book? particularly now working with Mel in this last couple of years on this edition, but then also to help take over as lead author after he's gone next time. So that was that was huge. Uh, had another book chapter come out, actually, in a book edited by Dr. Lowry and Joey Antonio on female-specific issues with protein and strength athletes. So that came out just this last month. And just lately submitted and waiting for final touches on a chapter on caffeine in a book that's edited by Joe Antonio and Abby Smith on sports nutrition and supplements. So it's a brand new sports nutrition textbook that will be coming out hopefully sometime next year. Cool. Okay, everybody. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break like we normally do for some uh, public service messages and other ads. When we come back, we're actually going to talk about two things with Dr. Anderson. One is research specific to strength athletes. I mean, you know, more elite strength athletes and how they differ from recreationally active subjects or the kinds of subjects that are usually in research studies. And we're also going to sort of have a special emphasis on caffeine because I'm sure the, you know, the whole literature review she's been doing for that book chapter is going to make her a great person to get sort of the skinny on caffeine. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Weekly Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back. Uh, we're back with Dr. Don Anderson, who we're going to discuss the topic of real strength athletes in university research and how they differ from other types of uh, research subjects that we often hear about in exercise studies. And then we're going to have a special emphasis on caffeine because of her recent, uh, well, not just recent, right? Your dissertation was on caffeine, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yep. So caffeine's yeah. been something I've had a passion about for a, quite a long time. Yeah, with, with everything getting banned uh, all the other kinds of stimulants. I think people sometimes overlook good old caffeine. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to touch on quickly is uh, caffeine does not equal coffee necessarily when it comes to ergogenic benefits. Is that right? Oh, gosh, no. There's quite a few other options that people have in addition to just coffee. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. I, I remember right. reading some work from uh, Lawrence Spreet and Terry Graham, and you know they'll they'll talk about a lot of the myths around caffeine about how it, you know it's not necessarily dehydrating. Or that, you know, a caffeine pill actually looks like it might be more ergogenic in some ways than just a cup of coffee, uh, and things like that. So, uh, anyway, before we get to caffeine, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's talk about strength and physique athletes and university research. How much research do you <coughs> actually see being done, uh, on, you know, elite or, or, you know, very strength and physique focused kinds of athletes? Is there a lot of research out there? Oh, gosh, no. And part of it depends on the definition that you use. So when you go through and try to do a search on Medline for strength athletes, you can come up with anybody that's been doing as minimal as, say, eight weeks of training and classifying that as is a strength athlete, resistance-trained athlete, somebody that's been two, two, three, eight years or more. You know, it's such a wide range. We've even got right. some of the studies that are coming out using rugby and football players, basketball players, or those doing plyometrics and considering these resistance-trained athletes. So as far yeah. as what you were asking about the elite strength athletes or physique athletes, there's very, very little done. Yeah, I think it's important for listeners to understand that a lot of the work that you see, a lot of the research you see is on college students. And yep. sometimes just to be able to recruit enough people, you, you know, like we did with the energy drink work that we've been doing this spring, Dr. Anderson and I, you recruit recreationally active, meaning, you know, they're not necessarily competing in a strength sport. Or, I mean, imagine if you try to recruit only bodybuilders and powerlifters. You might not be able to get enough bodies in your study to actually get some good data. So we recruit recreationally active people. So. They're sort of jack of all trades, master of none. And I think we saw some of that this spring. I mean, Don, you remember some of the people that were doing, we were doing a Smith machine benching and uh, like bench throws. It's yep. all, so, sort of imagine uh, listeners like a carnival, you know, event where you, you throw something as far up these guides as possible. And you could clearly see the difference between people who are longtime resistance trainers. They knew how to bench press or whatnot. And then people who were recreationally active but didn't have as much you know, weight training experience, they were the recreationally active people who in many studies it would be overlooked. It was fairly clear they could not develop power as quickly, you know, that rate of force development. They just couldn't transfer it to the bar as well as the people who had some, you know, background in it. Um, well, I think we saw that even evidence just in the form they were using in technique where we had some of them doing the bench throws and they would bring the bar down midway in their neck. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to see that with somebody that does a lot of strength training and knowing where to actually position the bar. Where's the appropriate place to put your body on the, the mat or on the board so you can lift and get that, that good technique and good power? Yeah. I think it's partly, it's, it's neuromuscular. I think part of it's even soft tissue. Like I've read interesting papers that there's a certain degree of tendon stiffness in a good way that develops in resistance trainers. And I think that lets you more quickly you know, uh, transfer force to the bar, oh, in a sense, question, yeah. you know, yeah. um, but, because I'll tell you, in, in the bench press, it, you could see it in, in the, in the, we did squat jumps as well, and again, we're doing it on a Smith machine for safety reasons, but um, you could really see that, the people who would sit in the hole and pause, we'd have them pause and then jump, people who didn't have as much experience, they seemed very kind of floaty and soft in the bottom, you know, they were, when they were down in the hole getting ready to jump. And the other people just seemed much more taut and ready to spring, you know. So anyway, that's one of the things that I just wanted to touch on with this whole topic was because I really think that 
the evidence that's out there on really strong or really heavily muscled guys, there's just not a lot of it there. But I mean, there are journals that focus on it. And and Don, you know, is of course as part of the NSCA. Maybe you can share with a couple of the uh, the journals that the NSCA has then. Because I think they are trying to overcome that, right? That focus away from just endurance athletes or recreational athletes. Right. right, NSCA is, but the hard part is when you come to descriptors that researchers are using. You know, what do you term as a resistance trained individual? And not getting into specifics as far as yeah. what style of lifting are they doing? How long have they been doing this type of lifting? Mm-hmm. You know, what type of weights are they doing? Are they doing really light weights? Or are we doing having somebody doing Olympic lifting and more heavy, hardcore stuff? You know, that's a that's great point. That's not usually disclosed in there. Yeah, because, I mean, so many people, like, um, just, you know, think that all resistance training can be grouped into one category of, you know, accomplishment or yes. activity. When, when the truth be told, anybody who has any, you know, kind of, you know, long-lasting experience in any of the, you know, specific disciplines. I mean, this, this could even be kind of used as now just to don your, you know, your... Um, you know, martial art discipline. I mean, you know as well as I do that, you know, you can't just say, you know, well, I do martial arts without, you know, and if you're talking with somebody who actually has any sort of like, you know, um, you know, detailed, um, want of, you know, discussion of it, you have to kind of, you know, clarify what the discipline is really. Otherwise, you're, you're just left like, like what? You know, do you, you, do you do. fight with a stick? Do you, you know, you're a taekwondo guy with a hard style, or you a soft style, or you, you know, like, I mean, there's so many different things you can say, and it's it's much the same thing, right? And so I, I actually kind of sometimes get offended by that, right? When people say, oh, you know, they just lump everybody in this gym together, they all just train with weights. It's like, you know, I mean, maybe it sounds kind of elitist, but you know, from from my background and what I'm trying to achieve and what I do, I kind of get offended by that. Like, I'm like, there's nobody in my gym that's like me. And that well, a lot know, of it comes down to your hypothesis. It's just like it's just, you know. but it's like, you know, don't don't lump me with all these people. You know, the guy over there that's been training for a year and is doing lateral raises. You know, it's like <laughs> we're we're not the same beast. You know what I mean? And we're and like Lonnie always talks about if you could actually like. You know, look at the biology and their nervous system and what what's been achieved and what's done. It's it's not the same creature, you know. Yeah, oh, I, I think if, enormously if the research. Different. Go ahead. Don. Sorry. Well, I said it's emor- enormously different. I agree completely with what you're saying. When we we look at this, all of them are grouped into the same category of resistance training. So to me, it's really hard when researchers are trying to tease some of the information out. You may be having lifts, movement patterns, speed of movement, degree of weight that they're not accustomed to doing at all. Right. And it'd be really nice, like Lonnie was saying, if right. you could have a larger subject pool that's that's more homogeneous. Could we have people that are all into you know Olympic lifting or certain types of, of a bodybuilding type training, something more to distinguish them and then do some some beautiful studies. That would really help with their scientific knowledge. It would, and it would help the results become statistically significant, too, because when you have a very heterogeneous group, sort of like what we saw this spring, you know, you get, you're witnessing people with, you know, their actual measurements are different. The outcomes, the dependent variables differ. Their performance differs. Now, I will say it really depends on the research question, right? Or the hypothesis. So if you're, if you're, if you're trying to say resistance trainers, if you want your study to apply to all resistance trainers, then as long as you're very clear, you know, I think listeners should understand that research is one rather specific question at a time. So if you want your, uh, to be externally valid, if you want to apply to a wide range of, of resistance athletes, then you sort of need to, not just for recruitment purposes, but even for the purposes of applicability, it helps to sort of bring them in. 
But at the same time, yes, the really cool stuff is when you start to say, this study is just on power lifters or just on Olympic lifters or just on bodybuilders because these are different creatures, you know. And uh, I'll tell you, I really saw this in the protein work that I was doing when I was doing some of that lifestyle and, and you know, dietary stuff on high-protein diets because I could not use football players, which I think a lot of people would automatically include into a power or resistance training population. But we all know that football players don't eat the way bodybuilders eat, you know, um, chicken breasts and egg whites and all the <laughs> kinds of things, traditional bodybuilding, you know, foods. Football players just pretty much eat whatever. You know, I mean, I hate to lump them all into a group as well, but at least in my experience working with collegiate teams, you know what I mean? They are not the same in a, in lifestyle or even, I think, knowledge of nutrition that I think a lot of bodybuilders are. So you have to be very careful, you know, saying that this is your resistance trained population because they could live and train radically differently. Um, yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah, so the definition is huge. Operational definitions are huge. Now, if I could just back up just a, a little bit. We talked to Bill Evan about this a little bit. So, Don, maybe you can explain a little. Why do we need uh, research then, either specific to the different strength sports and physique sports? Or, you know, why don't we just go with common sense or what coaches tell us, for example? Well, no offense to coaches. I think they learn a lot about their sport. They know a lot about some of the training techniques and practices and paths that have worked really well. But they don't have a lot of information about nutrition. They don't take coursework in that. They don't know about some of the new techniques that we have in combining nutrition and training techniques and what's going to be the best combination. They're not up on all that current information and how our technology has changed that allows us to learn more about how the body functions and how we can try to optimize some of that. What can we do to help with training? What can we help with recovery? What can we help to prepare an athlete to have the energy stores that he or yeah. she would need to have? And I think some coaches, some coaches quite good at that. Others less so. Uh, I remember a, I actually remember a, a, a track and field coach I was talking to a couple of years ago. He had all of his women taking, um, oh, what was he giving them? Niacin to. Uh, before they did their cardio to enhance fat burning, not realizing that that actually interferes with lipolysis. You know, that actually, he's actually, you know, doing the opposite, uh, the antithesis. Yeah, so not good. So anyway, and I think the other thing too is, um, per, and, and you know, on this, on this program, we've really tried to illustrate the benefits of both you know, education and uh, the experience of being out there in the field. Because let's face it, a textbook isn't going to tell you what it feels like to deadlift, you know, five, six, seven hundred pounds. Or, you know, there's a lot of experience too. I think one of the risks that we run into, and if you are a coach listening to this, would be that just because something you've seen something work for 20 years doesn't mean that that's the way to do it. You know, there could you could have been, frankly, you could have been doing something slightly wrong for 20 years, and maybe there is a better way. And although science can seem frustrating because it's so slow and stepwise, it is documenting what works so that you can take the next little step and try to do this systematically. Because otherwise, you could get this fantastic coach. When he dies, his knowledge goes with him. And, you know, that's sort of the, the problem uh, with that. Although, at the same time, we were laughing just the other week about some science is almost, um, as they're trying to document, they're catching up so badly, it's just almost comical. Like Phil was mentioning, right, that, uh, yeah. 
you know, there was a study. Where was that study done, Phil, where they said, oh, a bent shirts increase uh, your... Louisiana State University, I think. Yeah. Bench shirts increase your bench, your bench press. Hey, thanks for that, fellas. You know, so, 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 but at the same time, you know, they're trying to document it so they can move on. Um, and sometimes, though, there's just not a lot of data. So just as sort of a segue, we're going to talk about a little bit about caffeine. Um, one of the things that I noticed when we were looking at caffeine and energy drinks and, and, and actual weightlifting was we only found one study. One in our literature review, not to say that that's absolutely the only one, but there's certainly not many, on women and caffeine or energy drinks and performance. So that really stunned me that there is so little work with uh, women weightlifters or women resistance trainers. Uh, so, Don, maybe you could just share a little bit about that. Um, Oh, now, sure. You, you've, you've written, obviously, chapter, <laughs> women-specific chapters, like in the protein yep. book that just came out. You've written on caffeine. Um, maybe just let listeners know, what does the literature say? If you can boil down the, the hundreds of studies in general on caffeine, what does it do for performance and then maybe men versus women or what have you? Sure. And just to preface this a little bit, going back when you were talking about gender issues, that's kind of one thing I rebelled against studying when I was going through my PhD because I didn't want to be thought of as the woman studying the women's stuff. But mm. there are a lot of people, both men and women in research, that don't want to even examine women as research subjects because they're really afraid of the impact of the menstrual cycle and the hormonal influence. So they just flat out don't study them. So in the last uh, book chapter that I was doing on caffeine, I have literally, as you were saying, I have one study that included men and women as subjects. Everything else is strictly just done on men. And so our hardship there is, like you said, we just do not have the data. We can do some speculation, but not necessarily saying that men and women all react the same. So if you want kind of the, you want the quick rundown of what I know? Yeah, like what do you know, and I think listeners are probably, you know, as they're tuning in, what do you know as a, a bona fide, you know, caffeine and resistance training, you know, professor and a, expert, if you will, what do you, what can you share, uh, what can you boil down and summarize about caffeine and performance as you've done your uh, research? Sure. Here comes from some of the, the bullet point summary from that last chapter on caffeine. What we do know, caffeine has been shown to increase the number of repetitions to failure in bench press leg press, and leg extension. But we've seen little impact on muscular strength when we're measuring it in terms of one rep max. So when we look at that, okay, we're seeing it increasing that reps to failure. I guess a question that I have more long-term, if it does help with increasing in the reps to failure, if we're doing this over long-term, could then it affect long-term strength gains? I don't know. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's potential. We're not seeing it helping that one RM max. But that's over short-term studies. Yeah. Right. But you're, so you're and suggesting again, like a, a super training, like super training effect. If you do more reps every time you go work out when you're caffeinated, you're, you're well, bigger sure. because of it. I mean, it would make some logical sense. If we're seeing more reps to failure, you continue to do that tr- through training. You're going to see some differences happen in strength. So could this happen? I don't know. There's potential. So if anybody is, you know, in grad school or past and looking at some research projects, there's a great question for you. Take a look. It would be a meaty study to do, but it could have some great impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though there's a dearth of literature on women then, uh, and you know what? And in, in my defense, I, I almost feel guilty here because the work that I've done has been mostly men. 
And there, I, I do want listeners to understand. I know we have some uh, women listeners. Uh, it, it is harder to study women. Men are comparatively yeah. simple. I hate to say it that way, but I'm glad you did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it for you because you know it's like. Although there's there is obviously pulsatility throughout the day across the month it's like testosterone you know it's fairly stable you know I guess there's dietary impact and different things but um, alcohol and sleep and loss and that kind of stuff can bring it down but the point being is when you study women you, you know you've got to get them at the, pretty much the same time of the month you you have to make sure if you're doing dietary supplement work that you're doing you're buying a, a pregnancy tests and stuff or at least making them yep. aware that you know this could affect a developing fetus. I mean, there's that extra responsibility and cost and timing of it all. So imagine if you're going to have a, a female athlete and you want to be very, very strict, you might have to get her, uh, you know, on the, the same point in the cycle under condition A and condition B. And so it takes longer and it's harder. So it's not just sexism. I'm not saying there's no sexism in research, uh, but you know what I mean? There, it is harder. In oh, a lot is. of ways, but that doesn't mean it, it shouldn't be done because especially with the explosive growth of, you know, strength training in, in the academic world, Don, you and I, we've seen it over the last 20 years. I mean, it's not just runners anymore. And okay. so a lot of these people are women too. And I'll tell you, even when I go to conferences, I see a lot more women and I bet in class you do too. I mean, I, I bet it's not 90% men in your classes. Oh no, e- easily two thirds of my students are, are women. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've had it. Can you you talk a little bit about, um, and again, this is coming from a non-scientist here, so excuse if it sounds like idiotic, but we were just touching on a little bit. And and just for for my own curiosity, what have you found as far as the differences between how men and women respond to caffeine? What little of it is that might be known? Right now, we don't see any difference. But that's, again, on very, very limited research that's out there. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's really hard. That's something that I would love to do some more with. I did some work with our women's volleyball team on a, a two-year study, not doing resistance training, but some other dietary issues. And that's kind of leading me to an, um, a grant that I want to put to the NIH to look at women in resistance training. But it's going to be a lot more complicated to do, but hopefully it'll open some doors and give, get some answers to a few questions and maybe bring up some new questions people can get better answers to than what I can. Yeah. 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 I think it was interesting when, when you were pointing out reps to failure and things like that. This isn't so much a gender, um, point, but is that uh, several weeks ago, we were actually talking about a study that they were show, they showed that there was a, a sort of a breakdown between reps to failure and one rep max. Like you can get improvements in one that don't automatically translate to the other, mm-hmm. you right. know? Uh, and so with caffeine, you're saying that men or women, you can, it's more of a fatigue kind of thing, right? That it prevents right. fatigue. It lets you do more reps. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And when we look mm-hmm. at that psychological component, I think a number of people take caffeine initially to help with that you know, central nervous system stimulation. And <laughs> yeah. If we well, think I, particularly I, I, mornings, yes, many of us yeah. in mornings, but other times throughout the day. And we do see that psychological component come in that can help with training that I think sometimes we overlook. You know, not saying the physiological components right down at the muscle tissue aren't important, but we look at that psychological edge that can keep you in there for a few more reps or a few more sets. That does translate into better performance. I've said this before. Interestingly enough, it was like I I never even tasted coffee until I I met uh, Rock Solid over here, Lonnie. (laughs) So (laughs) when I I met him and, and... 
And to the, to this day, I rarely actually drink coffee outside of just prior to when I train. And um, part of the thing that I would probably say the majority of the reason why I drink black coffee before I train, um, and like I say, that's mostly only when I drink coffee at all, is this association because of Lonnie, because Lonnie kind of introduced me to it when I used to go over to his house, and we would, you know, you remember Lonnie? We'd, oh, yeah. You'd, you'd, you'd put on some Joe, and we'd sit there and kind of, you know, and it, it come, kind of becomes a ritual, you know? And it's so much so that that's why kind of I kind of 90% of the time only drink coffee before I train, because it's become, it's become, it's it's by association. You know what I mean? I smell black coffee, I start drinking right. black coffee, and it's got that kind of, that mental connection. So I don't really think to myself, it's never really, oh, I gotta put coffee on because I gotta jack myself up. It's more like I, I put coffee on because it's part of, and Lonnie knows this better than anybody in the world, I'm very ritual oriented. You know, and it's it, it's a ritual for me. You know, like it's it, your it, mindset. You know, like you said, it's psychological, and I think that's what's very yeah. tough with caffeine. When you do caffeine research, first of all, I mean, the amount of coffee that you drink, and you and I would have uh, one or two big cups. I mean, cups of coffee. You know, but oh, I only I know, drink maybe four <laughs> cups of coffee a week, but they're like mud. Right, exactly. You know? Well, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Anderson and I, we do that. We go back and forth on the hall. Hey, I'm making some coffee. And I mean, this was real coffee. This was strongly brewed Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying stand a fork up in it, but, you know, pretty darn strong. But at the same time, like you're saying, Rob, I think a lot of that, when it comes to at least performance benefits, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dawn, but it's something like five to six milligrams per kg is the effective dose for performance. Is that right? Well, it, and this or, is something that was interesting when I was doing research for this book chapter is, is we do see some people finding differences anywhere down as low as two to three per three. And some okay. not until about okay. five to six. So, so we you see might some get, individual responses that you might get by with even less. Okay. Oh, well, you're educating me then because I thought that the, you know, you'd have to drink half a pot of coffee to even approach the amount of caffeine that could help you. But you're actually suggesting that the coffee is good and strong. Two or three big cups of coffee, that oh, would actually some, be enough. For some, too. And, and that's, that's something that's interesting to me is we found some people were finding differences with as low as two to three milligrams per kilogram body weight and finding impact, yet others didn't respond as well until you got them up a little bit higher, closer to that five to six yeah. milligrams okay. per kilogram body weight. Well, I remember reading something, and again, from my limited knowledge of caffeine and its effects and so forth, I do remember reading a couple of years ago somebody saying, um, or what I was reading saying, that um, people respond very differently to caffeine as far as the uh, the lasting effects of it. Some people yeah, actually you know, get, get yeah. very ramped up very quickly, and but but for a you know, relatively short period of time, where other people don't quite get as you know jacked, to use, you know, um, but it, it's kind of long lasting. It kind of like seems to kind of like float around their system for longer. And I, I certainly ascribe to being the latter in that. I, I tend to get a lot from a little, basically, if I'm kind of just kind of like slowly sipping it for two or three hours. And then it, it seems to kind of just hang around me for several hours where, you know, I, but I don't ever get kind of like buzzed out or, you know, those nervous jitters or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, coming well, back I, when you're talking about psychological aspects, something else that I came across as I was doing some of the research on caffeine for this chapter is that we do find that the the beta endorphin levels are higher when people have consumed caffeine, and that definitely decreases our perception of pain. Mm-hmm. You know, for yeah, some people, you're going to have a little longer lasting effect with that too. Right. I, I mean, heck, they even put caffeine in uh, like anison in, in some of those, yeah. uh, you know. Um, hmm. NSAID meds because it speeds yep. some of the uh, 
the pain-killing effect. Oh, definitely. Well, I know we're all, we're basically out of time. Uh, I just wanted to make one last comment about the – one of the things I think that needs to be teased out about caffeine is something that uh, Dr. Anderson and I were actually l- looking at with an energy drink, which I know that's it's more than just caffeine. But and that's how much of this is uh, is purely psychological versus like motor drive. You know, like the way Rob and I would describe this in the past is: can you dump more electricity down your wires? You know, and move weights faster uh, in in the presence of some of these dietary stimulants. And actually, the energy drink stuff that we're going to have posters at the uh, ISSN meeting in Clearwater next month. It actually suggests that that's actually true. So we try to take fatigue out of it for the first time that I've really looked at. I mean, there has been some work with one rep max, but, you know, and can you actually generate force more quickly? Can you dump more electricity down those, you know, big motor units and move the bar more explosively? Because in a lot of sports, that's what matters. I mean, if you think about a boom, a backhand in tennis or boom, linemen pushing upward and outward on, on each other, you know, um, or a sumo wrestlers, or you know, any think power sports, or almost any sport. How much of this is is about explosiveness and not fatigue? So, yeah. you know, I think that's sort of an interesting frontier for caffeine. I'm excited for us to tease out more of the numbers on that. See what we have. Yeah, yeah. we have very preliminary stuff now. Uh, yeah, I, I, boy-girl differences, caffeine habituated versus non-habituated people. You know, like Rob, I think keeps himself from getting habituated by not overdoing it, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's lots to be dug out of that data set for sure. I'm the opposite. You could tap me and drink me. That's actually good, yeah. All right, guys and, and gal, uh, that's going to be it for today. So thanks again for being on, Don. I appreciate it so much. Well, you're welcome. Hopefully that was what you're looking for. Yeah, thank oh, yeah. You. I appreciate that. It, like, like I was saying at the beginning of the show, it's uh, it's nice to get a female on here once in a while. <laughs> yeah, both athlete and academic, you know, in yeah. that regard. So good yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Next week, everybody. Yeah. All right. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do... The professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the -the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, This will be something you can hold up and say, 
This is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I wanna have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.